Hi everyone, and welcome to our second ever, third ever, second ever, it depends on how you want to count the guests, whatever. Welcome to another episode of Adaptable. I am one half of your hosts, Matthew Monagle. I am an Austin-based film critic, uh, write for sites like Film School Rejects and the Austin Chronicle. I've been in Roger Ebert and Slash Film and a bunch of others. And I am the movie guy, but I got a video game guy here too for you. Brock, say hello to our friends. Hi, uh... I'm Brock Wilbur. I've never been in Roger Ebert. Phrasing, but okay, I hear you. Yeah, I, I'm. We need to expand more on your thing. Uh, yeah, now now it's Matthew's turn to do the intros because I fumbled the intros, but Matt Matt didn't. He got the right number of episodes, and that's what we love about this show. Uh, I'm the video game kind of guy, uh, and uh, this is our show about uh, board games uh, that adapt from an original source in one of our two worlds into the world of tabletop entertainment and why somebody would choose to do that. Uh, there are some really cool choices in this world. There are some really odd choices in, in this world. And I think today we are dealing with one of the cooler choices. Yeah, and if this is the first time you've listened to the show, it stands to reason because we don't have a ton of episodes. But <laughs> the kind of the impetus, the idea behind this was, you know, Brock and I were both independently doing our own thing in terms of the type of criticism we write, but we both found ourselves really obsessed with the idea of board game adaptations. And, you know, the first time we talked about a game, which was The Thing, um, Fantasy Flight's The Thing, you know, Brock had mentioned... Oh, it, fall, Fallout. I'm oh, sorry, Fallout, yes. Uh, Fantasy Flight's Fallout. Um, Brock had mentioned that it was particularly interesting to him because you're taking things that had existed already as a game that had you know, mechanics and gameplay and cooperation baked into them and adapting them for a new medium. As for me, you know, I grew up in an era where everything that was tied into a big movie kind of sucked. Like every licensed adaptation, be it a book or a video game or something like that, all of them were bad. And now we live in an era where board games are adapting movies and they're actually good. So we've been obsessed with this idea for a while. We decided to turn this into the basis of an actual honest to God podcast and this week we're talking about an episode that I know that both of us are very excited about and a game that both of us are very excited about. Brock, why why are we doing the thing? What was the, you know, why do, why do we like this? Why is it important? Uh, the Thing is the first uh, board game from uh, Mondo, uh, the, uh, the record label's sort of new offshoot of board games. There, it's been out for about a year. There's been no uh, follow-ups yet, but I'm sure they're working on other things that will inevitably uh, be on this show, and uh, the thing is is uh, based on the John Carpenter movie, but it's also inherently like the story is so based around game mechanics in the first place that it's sort of annoying that people haven't been doing a lot more adaptations of this over the years. Uh, there's been one or two, and we'll got talk about those, but uh, yeah, also uh, that movie slaps, uh, and it's it's scary and fun, and what a good uh, idea for a group game. So uh, that's why we're excited on this one. Yes, and I like how we uh, we we won't owe copyright to mutual friend Scott Wampler for saying that this fucks. So the the movie the thing does not fuck; it slaps, and that is our phrase, and we can use that. <laughs> I don't think I came up with slaps, but yes, we have to avoid crediting Scott whenever possible. Whenever possible. Well, let's talk a little bit about, because I know both you and I are huge fans of the movie because we are 30-something dudes that ingest media, and you can't do that without being a fan of John Carpenter's The Thing. But let's <laughs> let's kind of start, for those of you, for like the one of you 
who's probably a family member of one of ours that hasn't seen the thing um, and is wondering why we're focused on this. Let's talk about kind of the importance of the movie. And then Brock is going to tell you a little bit about the game, but he's also going to tell you about the video game, which I'm really excited about. We'll get to that in a sec. (laughs) So John Carpenter's The Thing is actually based on a short story. In 1938, uh, John W. Campbell, who's an author, wrote a short story called Who Goes There? in an issue of Astounding Science Fiction. And if you've seen The Thing and you go back and you read the short story, you're actually going to find a lot in common. There's the Antarctic Research Station, the shape-shifting alien, the blood tests, the the dudes that are trying to survive in this harsh winter climate. A lot of what was in that short story made it into John Carpenter's film. But it wasn't the first adaptation of that short story. And actually, how Carpenter was introduced to it was by watching The Thing from Another World, a 1951 adaptation of that novella directed by, or sort of directed by, which is a whole story, Howard Hawks. Now, before you know anything else about John Carpenter, you need to know that Howard Hawks is his absolute favorite filmmaker. You can read an interview with him or watch a behind-the-scenes documentary or anything like that, and the first thing he'll say is that Hawks was the inspiration behind Assault on Precinct 13, which was his big first film. And the historical importance of The Thing from Another World is actually that it, it was made in the era of McCarthyism, and so it does a really cool job of kind of, you know, in capturing the paranoia and the uncertainty of that era. Uh, but probably what will make fans of Carpenter's movie and what continues to, to make that an important film is that it scared John Carpenter enough as a little kid that when a remake came along, when somebody offered him the opportunity to do that as a project, he jumped on it. So his version, which came out in 1982, still has a pretty big political through line. He doesn't do McCarthyism, but he does talk about Cold War, Cold War paranoia And there's a lot in there that talks about Reagan-era masculinity, too. Uh, But I think the reason that people love it and the reason that it consistently is named one of the most important horror films of all time is that it just has this cool production design, this emphasis on practical effects. Carpenter, as a kid, grew up watching all of these movies where at the very end, this terrifying monster would turn out to be, quote, a guy in a suit. So when Carpenter made this, what he really wanted to do is he wanted to have believable, inhuman monsters that he would be able to create and that wouldn't be just a dude wandering around in a rubber suit at the end. And I, you know, I talked about how successful this film is, and it's important to note that it wasn't successful when it first came out. The thing actually did pretty poorly. It only made about 19 million on the original budget of 10 million, which was good for the 42nd overall spot at the box office in 1982. And it was actually about seven spots behind Pink Floyd's The Wall. So that weird concert slash animated movie Um, that was basically an excuse to go do acid and sit in a movie theater, finished well ahead of John Carpenter's The Thing. And the critics kind of gave it bad reviews, too. When it came out, the New York Times called it, quote, the quintessential moron movie of the 1980s and a foolish, depressing, overproduced film. Now, it's endured. You know, it, it found its audience and it continues to find its audience. And I think now it's gotten to the point where if you say, oh, I love The Thing, people are like, oh, that's sort of basic, which is as it should be because (laughs) it is a great movie and everyone should love it equally. Um, But there are some interesting things that have come up in the interim. And before we talk about this board game in particular, and even before you talk about the mechanics of this board game, Brock, I'd love for you to talk about a video game adaptation that you and I both play. Uh, so there, there have been some attempts, uh, obviously, with this being such a beloved thing. And it, it, it is so weird to, to have to remember that, like, this was not a movie that was liked on release because it seems like it's as long as I've been in live, it's been enjoyed by everyone that I know and respect and no one. Like, who has a criticism of this film that they, they're like, no, I don't enjoy that. Like, I, right. I don't 
I don't want to talk to that person. They seem boorish and that they're doing this deliberately. It's a perfect film. Uh, and, uh, and it's so cool and interesting. And the themes always goddamn work, no matter what time period you're in. Uh, so uh, there's been a number of attempts to do stuff that continues this. Uh, and some of the less interesting versions of that have included, like, comic books that pick up where this movie leaves off and... And I've always thought, you know, you don't want to pick up where this movie leaves off because it has a deliberately uh, mixed ending, which right. is ambiguous for a reason. And to try and ascribe either sort of definite ending to it, like retroactively hurts the film. Uh, there's been a prequel movie that came out in 2011. But uh, in back in 2002, uh, Vivendi Universal uh, released a game that was called The Thing, which had John Carpenter's blessing. Um, which is a video game that sets you uh, in the Antarctic and you're uh, a military guy that's sent there to sort of like go look for everyone that's gone missing at both that camp and some other camps. And so you sort of jet set around the Antarctic um, meeting people that have survived and, uh, and, and trying to get them to help you kill a whole bunch of monsters. There's it's it is it it has that problem that a lot of especially two thousands era video games had when they were adapting something that were like, I don't know, I know that this wasn't what the movie was about, but what if you just had like a bunch of big guns and had to shoot a whole bunch of weirdo monsters and you know what, it's fine. It's it's good for what that is. But um the thing that became really interesting about the thing, uh, is that um Everyone that you met sort of had this trust mechanic with you, which is basically how the movie works, too. It's about getting people to, to believe that you are who you are and then also figuring out who among them is not who they say they are. Uh, and so you would meet other survivors who would initially distrust you because obviously you're the thing. A person didn't just show up out of nowhere here. Um, and so in order to gain their trust, you would like give them your guns and bullets and like health packs and so on and so forth. And each of these people that you would encounter had certain skill sets, like an engineer could open certain doors, so on and so forth. Uh, and it was just a, a fucking great idea and really interesting like version of application for it. Cause like, obviously if no one came to trust you, they just wind up shooting at you and like that doesn't help anybody and you need certain people to solve certain situations. But the problem with it is that it was also a 2002 uh, Xbox One, original Xbox era game. Uh, so um, all of the all of the points in the game where uh, where you would sort of sit down and be like, okay, maybe we should blood test people or, or, or do what have you. Um, the events where somebody would turn out to be the thing were pre-scripted and never changed. So you couldn't like I in playing through with uh, my game, like I reached a point where. A medical officer I had turned out to be the thing and I panicked and was like oh no what did I do wrong so I reloaded the game like an hour back to be like I'm gonna do everything different with him like or, or at least this time roll of the dice he won't be the thing and every time at the exact same point giant tentacles would burst out of him and he would have four mouths and I was like oh okay so it doesn't matter what I do at some point all the same people will always be the thing and the other people will not be so it, it was kind of murdered by technical limitations, and the real shame of it is that the game sold pretty well and was pretty well-received, all things considered, despite having a more complicated uh, game system than uh, that I think uh, action gamers were ready for at the time. So there was a sequel that was put into motion like almost immediately, and there is pre-production artwork out there for that that has just crazy weird monsters and a bunch of, like dynamic environments and stuff and clearly they had the the experience now to make a game that 
would randomize this sort of thing so there'd be a replayability and you know your actions and would have consequences and the things that you chose to do would matter and it didn't happen uh which is uh a supreme bummer it's it's always hard to watch something happen that you're like this is mediocre but it's somebody learning how to do the better version of it and that'll come next and then i'll be real happy to have that thing um and uh so that that is the story of of the other adaptation attempt here to bring the thing into a playable uh, world and and the the things that went wrong there. <laughs> so I just have to share is sort of uh, a final word on that. One of my favorite John Carpenter quotes of all time is about um, the video game adaptation of the thing. Uh, he was talking to Den of Geek in two thousand eight, and he said, "I played parts of it. I was actually a character in it. The Doctor later on. They killed me off though, so fuck them." <laughs> Which, if you, it should also be noted that John Carpenter is uh, remains such a big video game fan, and like if you follow him on Twitter, he does a lot of like just out of nowhere, like two days after a game is released, he'll like share like really complicated thoughts on it, and you're like, where is John Carpenter finding time with his Xbox One to play like 13 hours of this game on release weekend? And he also has said like things like um, the the Dead Space series. He's like, I. I if they let anybody make a movie of that, please let it be me. And you're like, oh God, yes, let 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 the guy whose work influenced your original IP have the chance to adapt your thing that's taken from him. Uh, let let the master do his work uh, in these few years left while we still got him, while he's out touring the country with his son in a band and things like that. <laughs> and I don't want to go too far uh, talking about the video game because this is a board game podcast after all. But, you know, he has, like, correct me if I'm wrong, the video game industry has never really tapped into him the way that you would think, right? Like, he's been involved in a couple of projects, but for a guy that just sits there and, like, plays horror survival games and NBA games all day, every day, like, I feel like somebody should have been like, why don't we just give him a shit ton of money? Because they did that with Clive Barker. Clive Barker made a couple of different video games back in the day, early generation kind of stuff. But they basically were like, you write whatever you want and we'll figure out a way to turn that into a video game. And they have, they never did the same thing with Carpenter. Yeah, it, and like, uh, boy, it's it's on his list of a million things that don't happen, but uh, Guillermo del Toro has had multiple video games that have had giant announcements that like, not a, not a single... Uh, pre-production art design was ever made for like it just like he definitely has a story document somewhere and people did like trailers for it and were so excited and like none of these things ever come together I suppose it is very difficult well in in del Toro's world like that's a guy that's always trying to make eight different movies and like one of them happens every three years and like it seems like his plate is already quite full John Carpenter as we mentioned isn't doing that much right now and like I don't know if he has it in him to be full-on directing films anymore but yeah having that guy write up like a treatment for a video game that's five to ten pages long and has some ideas and then uh you know going and making that and putting his name on it doesn't seem like the worst business decision hey indie gamers uh some dev out there maybe you should talk to him about it it seems like he's just sitting in a room being unappreciated yeah this feels like an article i have to write now um or or you or you can write it one of us will write it all right I can talk about John Carpenter and video games forever, but we're here to talk about Mondo's adaptation of The Thing, and Brock, you this week are going to walk us through the playthrough. So how do we play Mondo's The Thing? All right, so in Mondo's The Thing, uh, you and a group of friends uh, between four and eight, uh, you can't do three, right? It's four. It has to be four, four to eight. 
It has to be four. Uh, between four and eight people, uh, you are a team of survivors at the Antarctic Research Station, uh, and uh, you've got two complete quests in an effort to uh, clear out the base of things and to move towards your inevitable goal, which is escaping via helicopter. Uh, now, from the start of the game, somebody in your group is the thing. Uh, there's some there's some cards to turn over. At least one person is definitely the thing, and there are opportunities throughout the game for more people to be converted. You don't know. Uh, it's all about secrecy. Uh, and basically what happens is that each uh, round of the game, uh, a gun is passed between the players, uh, denoting who is the captain now, because whoever has the gun is in charge. Uh, they draw a series of cards, and the cards uh, have a set of, of instructions for what needs to happen in a certain room to accomplish your goal. Uh, you decide who's coming with you on the mission, who's staying behind, and then you attempt to do these things, and uh, sometimes somebody uh, in your group, while playing cards towards uh, the, your quest goal, uh, will start sabotaging you. And that's when you know, uh-oh, someone's the alien. Uh, and then it's about sort of Figuring out who that person is, but also you can't really kick them out because you still need everybody to to accomplish most of the things that you're up to. Uh, and so the game progresses with you clearing out uh, three different stages of the space. Uh, as things go, um, the monsters you encounter become more difficult. Uh, the situations become harder to to accomplish like there's you can wind up in in what should be a fairly straightforward mission it being four different rounds of dice rolling and card playing um and uh and then at the end if you can make it that far because there are a lot of ways for things to go wrong where no one even sees the helicopter at the end uh at the end there is a helicopter uh and you have to whoever is the captain uh and by vote of the group you choose who gets on the helicopter and if anyone that's the thing gets on the helicopter Obviously, game over for Earth, because uh, the the things won there, um, and uh, and so it's about you, you might wind up leaving some real humans behind, uh, or you you might wind up just really botching everything at the last second. So it's a really interesting uh, team based cooperative board game where you don't know whose team everyone is on, uh, and it is a game that is. Uh, the the board game itself is is a beautiful thing with with really beautiful uh, uh, player tokens and 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 the uh, and the board itself is just incredible with such detailed choices made on 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 just really examining the film to death to see where each room is and where doors are and stuff it's it's a gorgeous game the board game element of hit is almost completely unnecessary where you put your your little guys and where these these tokens and things happen it you don't you you almost don't need it you could almost do this as a card game without the board game element but what is incredibly important about this game is uh is is crosstalk and overtalk it is a game where uh, it just in, encourages you to before you do anything tell people why you're doing it ask people why they might not be helping with it uh, encourage some discussion about who you don't like in this situation. It is it is a game that is so goddamn effective at taking a room full of people that probably like each other and turning them into monsters. Uh, it is such a fun, uh, well-thought-out experience uh, with such incredible replayability. In fact, it is a game that, like, with each with each replay becomes more and more fun, especially with the same group of people because you sort of learn the nuances of what you can get away with and uh 
and you just uh, really start to double and triple down on it, and it gets to be a, a pretty brutal experience pretty quickly. But that is the mechanics portion of the thing. So, Brock, is it fair to say that the real thing is the friendships lost along the way? Oh, no, bud. <laughs> uh, I'm going to write that down and retweet that later. From my, It's going to be great. People are going to really like that. <laughs> Please write down next to that, people are going to like it. Let's, <laughs> let's revisit this. Oh, I pre-write all my tweets and bucket them into things I think will do well and not. Uh, but, you know, I'm not type A. So, all right. <laughs> I don't even know if you're joking. I, I, I don't either. Um, but I, I digress. <laughs> We So we both played this with a couple of different group sizes, right? I played this with one group of eight. We got two games in as a group of eight. And then I played this at uh, with a group of four, and we, again, played it twice. Um, I right. have some thoughts that I'll share in a moment about why playing it with a minimum number of players or the maximum number of players is not the exact right outcome for this. But you played, uh, we had talked about this briefly. I don't remember. You played it with a couple of different groups many, many, many times. I have, I have played it at every group size level uh, and with uh, wildly different friend groups. Uh, one one was just a, a group of people that a, uh, a friend who is a, a Christian film critic, it was her friends from like church. And I was just like, mm. okay, well, we're going to, we're going to have an interesting afternoon, aren't we? Uh, I'm going to have a wine and then, uh, and then upset you with the words that come out of my mouth. Uh, no, it, every... Every one of them was a, it, it is a wildly different game at the different uh, size levels. Why don't you just, why don't you tell people what you what you think about those different group sizes? Sure. So basically, the game is, as Brock said, is for four to eight players, which means that you can play it with four, you can play it with eight, you can play it with any number in between. And like all good board games that recognize that there shouldn't be a one size fits all approach to player count, they have different mechanics built in for each of those. So if you play with a group of four to five. You're going to get um, you know, a slightly different set of rules. You'll start with different cards in your deck, or you'll take cards out of your deck. Uh, and then as you ramp up the number of players, you'll add and remove cards to kind of make that. Hopefully most people have played a board game that has that. It's a good way of sort of rebalancing depending on the number of people you have. But sort of- I've actually not played, played that many games that have that element, and I was really surprised by it and liked it so much because, yeah, it opens up a whole bunch of different adventures that wouldn't make sense and and to scale these things was really cool to me. Yeah, and part of what makes it so important for the thing is, as you said, there are these situations where you're going to, you and your group are going to get a challenge that they have to pool cards in order to pass. And whether or not they lie about what cards they're putting in or if they sabotage with the cards is sort of that, the heart and soul of the game, that crosstalk thing. But that player count becomes really important with the number of people you have to send on these quests because you know the base size is groups of four or five and there are also some three so if you're playing with a smaller group the maximum number of people you'll send on a team is is that four or five count but they don't ramp up that much more than that so if you're playing with eight you know you're still choosing among four or five of your players to go and complete some of these quests or in some cases i think it goes all the way up to six Um, but that creates this interesting scenario for you where you know, you are the number of players depends makes it easier or more difficult, sort of, to figure out who or to to be able to start logically thinking about who's the thing, because when you play at a smaller size, everybody has to go all the time. You're basically all of your team members are going into a party, and when you play with a larger size, half your team is only going to go on any given thing. But that also has some right. challenges because the more players you have, the more likely it is that the equipment you need is on the table, so you can 
take a moment before you go on the quest and say like who has a who has rope we need rope you have rope great who has a who has a, a gun do you have a gun great we'll come with you whereas at the the small group you're sort of like all right we need four guns I, do we have them no well we're gonna do it anyways because we have to so the sweet spot for me if i were to play this again i think the sweet spot for me would be probably five players maybe six players because I think at five, because you do a lot of challenges that say four or five, you get to leave somebody behind. And I think it's essential to kind of balance that like scarcity of resources. So you're not playing with enough players that everybody has everything all the time, but you are playing with few enough players that you still get to leave one person back. And the ability to leave people back when you go on missions is really the nuts and bolts of how you suss out who might be the thing. So we'll talk about why the game works and why it was still fun at four or eight, but if you're like if your first question is I'm gonna listen to this podcast I'm gonna play who should I play with, start with five people I think is is my recommended number. <laughs> also, if you're like me, it's sort of difficult to go find more than five people that you want to spend a couple hours playing board <laughs> games with. So that should also be weighed in. I, I I have found it easier to find more people with this game because it is the thing, mm-hmm. and because film people are uh, I'm I'm never short of them. Uh, film people that have the time to do it you you're right uh, and and it is worth noting that this is almost uh there is almost a shorthand for people that have played this game so that if somebody's like hey gonna try my first game with eight people tonight you're just like oh shit man good luck <laughs> like you you know how how brutal this is gonna get and how out of control that will become so quickly uh, i <laughs> i'm actively afraid of playing games uh, of seven or more uh so yeah six and five Sounds great. Uh, just enough people to be able to keep guessing what's happening. Uh, four is a little slim, but like you can absolutely do it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's probably it's worth noting that there okay. are uh, mechanics that are going on here that are um, the the more people you have, the more entertaining these these mechanics become. There are situations where like a fire will start or smoke will start that becomes a fire after a certain number of turns and parts of the building can be destroyed if it isn't taken care of. So you need to dispatch people separately from your mission. Uh, basically somebody that you've held back to like send and like if that person says that they have a fire extinguisher to put out the fire but then they get there and then the fire isn't put out you know that they're the thing but also sometimes somebody that's the thing will just put out the fire just to prove that they're definitely still a human being there's it, it it creates a situation where there's more side quests and you have the ability to go on them as opposed to like what matt mentioned earlier where at some point you look around at a table of four and you're like none of us have what we need to do to accomplish this no one has a fire extinguisher in their hand right now so i guess that room is just gone uh, so yeah, I, I I do like how how much more complicated the game systems become at that size. Yeah, and it's it's worth noting as well. I mean, if you play the thing with a group of people that have played it before, it's really not going to give anyone an advantage or a disadvantage. There's like any like any board game, there's a bit of rules to learn. So if you know if you're a friend of Brock's and you're listening to this and Brock says, hey, come over and play the thing with a group of people that have all played it. Like you're not really going to be at a disadvantage because it's still going to be about figuring out who the people are. Like if you've ever played Secret Hitler or Mafia or Werewolf or something, you know the new people there, it's they figure out the mechanics and then when they do, it's all about who can play the other players. So that is also worth noting. It's not a deterrent if you somebody invites you to come play this game at a size that we're like, oh, don't play it at eight. When you play this through the first time, a lot of times playing it tight revealing as little information as you can is a good play because 
this is another right. one of those, you know, as we've experienced, I'm, this is one of those games um, where you end up having a couple of people that sort of dominate the conversation, which often isn't the the optimal move for the humans or for the thing to sort of have plays. So you'll have plenty of time to sort of watch and learn as others are doing what they're doing. Uh, or, or you can be like my friend Abby, uh, who, uh, when she is the thing, can't stop giggling during every round of crosstalk. Mm. So from the start of the game, it's pretty easy to tell that Abby has been, become the thing again. It's like, Abby, what she, what's happening? And just little giggles and smirks, and she can't look anybody in the eye. And I'm, she, I, I've never seen anybody with less of a poker face, and that's why I love playing this game with her. Uh, always know where she sits. Uh, yeah, there's... Yeah, there's playing it close is easy, and like you said uh, about uh, people trying this for the first time, almost everything in this game is based on group decision uh, and group choices. So there's almost nothing that you have to do individually besides decide what cards you're playing from your hand, and even then, that's probably something that you're talking about. So if I sat down at a table and no one took time to explain any rules to me, and the game just got started, I would know what to do, uh, and not because I'm good at board games, but because it just like other people know what direction you're moving and some of the more specific details about when a captain can be tied up with rope for a turn and stuff like all that can come whenever it needs to come and somebody will bring it up if it's necessary but the the main thrust of the game you you're just there and you can be a part of it uh, to whatever degree you want yeah and the the large group that i played with a group of eight it was a mix of people that i knew really well um, friends of mine from college I had a couple of work friends, and I had some other people that I that I would consider friends. I don't know as well, and they had brought some people that I didn't know at all. So it was a really interesting mix. And as somebody who um, always gets a little nervous in mixed group settings, where you're kind of like trying to make sure, as the host, you're trying to make sure that everybody's getting along and having a really good time. Like it was funny to watch how that played out because there were people that came, and you know they were very dedicated to it. So they. Not only did they watch the movie, which they hadn't seen before, but they also watched video tutorials and like they read through the rule book and they were like, all right, I understand the theme and I understand the mechanics. I had another friend who, bless his heart, never like is always enthusiastic and always plays really well on board game night, but will never ever read the rules ahead of time or watch a tutorial. And it's just sort of understood <laughs> that like my buddy will just show up and like he'll, by the end of the night, he'll be great and it's not going to hold us back. But he's just like, yeah, you'll have to explain it to me, which is fine. And then we had some other friends, like one person in particular who showed up hammered. And which we knew, and he was more than welcome to it. They were coming from a party, and they had a really good time, and like got progressively more drunk as the night went on, and played beautifully, like played perfectly <laughs> the entire night because of that, and like was loud and it's boisterous. It's like beating a, a lie detector test. Like if you have no baseline. Uh, then it's impossible to tell. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Like, there was nothing... So, like, the whole night that, that he was playing, he ended up winning the <laughs> second game um, and was the original thing and had just played the group of us to perfection the entire time. So, it's... It, whatever mixture of people you have, again, because the main mechanic of this game is deciding, and very similar to Secret Hitler and stuff like that, deciding who's going to go on the mission and then sending them on the mission and then seeing whether or not they fucked you on the mission... That part is always fun, and it's the nice thing about the thing is it recognizes the quality of that. So as Brock mentioned, when you're going through sort of these three levels, and it's a very strong video game mechanic of like go on three quests in a sector and pick up these missing items. It's it's basically just like go find shit under you know under rocks and stuff in the thing. But you're always doing this bluffing, you know, teaming pooling resources thing, which is which is a lot of fun and. 
I agree that it doesn't need to be. It, there's no reason for it to necessarily be a physical board, but it's just so much more satisfying as a group when you're yelling and pointing at little plastic things on the table and being like, my guy would never do that. <laughs> it is. It is. It is really good. Um, so I guess this next segment we should get into is, which is probably going to be our, our a, a full on segment moving forward. If we learn anything from our fallout episode, uh, let's talk about uh, the dreaded end game. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, in this game, you there there as mentioned before, teams of humans, uh, teams of aliens. <clears throat> the number of aliens is always sort of going up. Uh, there's no real way for that number to go down. You could have as many as half of the people in the game as aliens by the by the end of it, uh, at a or or even more, I suppose, at a smaller number. Um, so the win conditions here for humans are outrageous. There are so many things that you have to do and accomplish uh, and then still get everything right without the right number of like blood tests to check people and pick how to get off in the helicopter. And the the thing of it is, um, despite all of the games that I've played, I have never once seen a group get to the helicopter. It's never happened. We've never made it that far. And I realized that in doing our, our Fallout uh, podcast episode, you were the one that had never seen an end game happen and like you were pretty upset about that and I realized in prepping for this I don't I'm fine not having ever seen us get to the helicopter it feels like it is a realistic version of what would happen if a couple of humans are up against a super intelligent alien shape-shifting life form we're not the chances aren't great in fact in the movie I guess you can even look at it and say you know there it probably didn't pan out either um so there are these wind conditions and the things have so many situations where they can do sabotage that not only like causes a mission to fail, but there is sort of a sliding scale uh, as another game component of number of, of, of sort of like rooms that have been destroyed or, or other things that have gone wrong. And uh, the slider for it is a little uh, game piece that is the, uh, the computer that MacReady calls a bitch in the movie, uh, the chess computer. Uh, and so it, the chess computer has like eight or nine spaces. And, and as it moves up in sort of this doomsday clock scenario, the aliens you encounter become stronger. Uh, you you fight aliens, by the way, by playing Yahtzee against them, uh, which isn't it's it's kind of funny. No, I, <laughs> I, I love it. I'm on record as loving it. It's just such a like. You know, it, it matches the complexity of the game perfectly. That like you are doing this thing which feels satisfying, but you also have some degree of control over. Um, actually, the the Yahtzee thing I I really like. It's the, it's the right fit for for the thing for me, and it's an Im- intrinsically understandable thing because everybody who sats down is like, so how do we fight the thing? I'm like, you play Yahtzee, and they're like, Yahtzee. oh, you play yeah, Yahtzee. You play, you play Yahtzee at it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's so um, the humans. Each human character has sort of like a little superpower uh, when it's their character's turn and their superpower can be like, you can change the number on one dice in one round or, or you can draw an extra card for this thing. Like there are some things that are supposed to be, there's some situations and rules that are supposed to give the humans an edge and they, they do not. Uh, And in fact, one of our first games that we played, I was the thing from the start and my wife was very upset because she's like, I just want to see, like, we hadn't even made it into the third part of the base after a couple of games. And she was like, can we just make it to the third part of the base? So, uh, and we've talked about this a little bit with the game, uh, you and I, um, there is a way of playing this game, especially when you're the thing 
where you just play it completely straight. You just play it like a human, and it makes everyone else go wild because they're like, "Why has no one tried to sabotage this after after how things went before?" Um, and and it actually makes it really easy for you to frame other people to look like the thing uh, when no one's been doing sabotage, and all of a sudden you can set up a situation. But like, I had a card in my hand that I could have played on what I'm going to say is the fourth turn of the game. And I would have won the game. It was it was uh, an automatic sabotage card in a room that was already on fire, and like it would have been double points on this thing and uh, on our little apocalypse slider scale. I basically would have won. I would have won right there. They couldn't they, even if they took me on no more missions or even talk or ever talk to me again within the next couple of minutes. I would have won the game. And I deliberately didn't play it, and like we kept the game going for forty five minutes and still didn't make it into the third part of the base. Uh, even though I was the only thing just because they they just had the wrong cards and did the wrong dice rolls and like just had the worst luck and I was like oh guys come on like the the alien didn't even do anything that time and you guys bumbled your way into failure uh, which which I felt bad about but that also showed me that like oh even if I try not to play in my best interests this game can really shut you down real hard and real fast uh, so uh, that is that is my critique of it, I guess. I, I love this game so much, and I, I'm so thrilled by it, but I, I suppose in looking at it from from this mechanical standpoint, it's probably not good that I've never seen the end game. not once over the course of, I'll say, 14, 15 plays. Like, that's... We should... And I, and I think that that's uh, leaning towards uh, a future of us having some uh, house rules that maybe limit the alien's power in the first act or something like that, because boy, it, it, it that just seems like a, a steep curve. Yeah. I, we briefly talked about this before recording. Um, and I had literally the exact opposite experience with the end game, um, which is sort of fitting because that's where we were with, uh, fallout too, right? Like you had always managed to finish it and I had never managed to finish it now, vice versa. Like I played through, I think I, four, di- four different versions of this game, and only once did we not get to the helicopters, the final. Both times with the group of eight, we got to the helicopter. Once with the group of four, we got to the helicopter. And the thing for me is that we realized this pretty quickly into the first gameplay. So, you know, there are opportunities for the thing to sabotage throughout the game, um, and there is a long-term strategic benefit to doing that. Because at the end of the game, you have a thing called blood tests, which basically means that out of the entire group of players, if you have blood tests available, and there are up to two of them, you get to check and reveal the um, affiliation of two players of your choosing. So the group decides, you know, we want to look at Brock and Matt. Turns out Brock and Matt are both a thing. Great. Then we know that everybody else isn't probably, um, so we're okay. So the game sort of says, like, that is the thing, or that is the group's failsafe, is that if you can keep these and you lose them as bad stuff continues to happen to you, just like the Doom Tracker. But if you can keep those blood tests in play, then at the end you can sort of suss out who the thing is. So the thing, right. the thing wants to be doing this thing where, like, on paper, they want to be sabotaging I, so a little sorry. bit. I hear, us trying, I hear us trying so hard in this podcast to not say the thing about everything. That, <laughs> I, I, I hear us both correcting, and, and at some point, like, yes, let's just acknowledge there's no better word for the thing than the thing. Yes, the other thing. <laughs> it's a bit of an SEO nightmare. I don't think our organic traffic on this one will be particularly great. Uh, <laughs> we but, should have called it the thing from the other world. <laughs> that should have been. Which there is another board game. You told me about that. We'll talk about that in a sec. Oh, 
Yeah. Okay. Um, the so that's that's the idea of it is that and I'll use you've been using aliens. I'll say aliens. So um, you know, as if you're playing as the aliens, then your goal is basically like to sabotage a little bit to make it harder in the end game for the humans to figure out who you are. But the problem in our playthrough was, as a group of eight, we decided super fast. We realized super fast that if you play straight until the very end and you provide no information whatsoever about your loyalty, then it kind of becomes a coin toss because the purpose is at the helicopter, the final captain who's elected by the group has to take all of the humans and none of the things. Um, That's sort of the way. You have to bring, like, if you're a group of eight, you have to bring six and two of them, two of the aliens have to stay behind. Uh, So we all played it as straight as possible and... The second time we played through as a group of eight, we did not fail a single challenge. I think we actually did the minimum number of quests. We did three in the first sector, three in the, or two in the first sector, three in the second sector, three in the... Like, everybody was just providing their best cards, and we were working together, and we got to the helicopter, and then it was just basically a scrum, because this whole 45-minute game that we just played reset into this, based on nothing, let's have a conversation about which two characters we should leave behind. And it got ugly, and it got really bad, and then it turned out it didn't matter because the person we elected captain was the thing, and anything that would have followed would have just, it did like, one person automatically was on the helicopter that was going to doom the game for the humans. And that, to me, left a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth, not because it doesn't feel like that should be the end game. I think the end game scenario is appropriately difficult, and I think it's in keeping with the world that they've adapted. But I do feel like if you, if your plan, if you can basically have a game changing strategy an optimal play that will work 99% of the time, that to me is no, not as much fun. And to the point where I kind of want to play this again, not because I want to win or lose, but because I want to play as one of the aliens and tweak strategies and figure out like exactly how much I should or shouldn't sabotage and exactly like what that middle line is. And granted, that's also part of the reason why I don't think eight is the optimal player, because in a group of four, it didn't matter if we were all playing as straight as we could. We would fail challenges because we would not have the right cards. In a group of eight, if everybody sort of collectively goes, oh, why don't we just all wait until we get to the helicopter to, to reveal, and then the humans will never survive. That basically, there was one person who had every card that we needed in the group of eight, and we just plowed straight on through to that. Huh. Yeah, I, I, and and conversely, uh, I I did a round of the game that uh, I drew that I was, and this was a group of five, five. It was a group of five uh, where I I was the thing right out of the gate, and I just came into the game, uh, big dick energy, uh, just like the very first mission, put a sabotage card out there, and it was very much like I do not care who knows, I am gonna be I'm gonna sabotage as much as I can, and it was uh, at, at the level of like five players it was very clear that again there were enough things that uh there were enough missions that i could not be brought on uh, when they figured me out pretty quickly uh but like there was still enough stuff that like i had to come on or some sort of event came up that i needed to be there and uh even if they knew that uh i was gonna sting them uh they had to put me into the game and then i would sting them uh, and it was a very short game so if you're if you're playing it aggressively, you can a single player can end the game very quickly, which seems like it is overpowered in a way that if 
if I'm playing my hand and really revealing myself right out of the gate, there should be something to stop me. <laughs> yeah, again, I do think that comes down to size a little bit too, though, because we had, uh, in hindsight, like our playthroughs accidentally created these perfect parallels between group size. In our game of eight and in our game of four, both times somebody accidentally revealed themselves as the thing super early. Um, in one case, in the group of eight, somebody who is admittedly not as up on the rules, and I felt bad about this in the moment, um, referred to the humans as, as they. Um, they were talking about, well, like if all the humans are trying to get on there, then they should go ahead. And people were like, wait, what do you mean they? And so like, we, and oh, he was no. like, he was oh, like, no, I mean, I mean, not the. And, and so we basically, because we were that eight group size and he never needed to be on a quest, we took him and we quarantined him and he spent the entire rest of the hour, thankfully he's a really good sport, but he spent the entire rest of the hour just like doing nothing, um, just kind of watching us and every now and then trying to like, you know, slide a little bit of deception in and everybody being like, shut up, Tim, we know who you are. And he was like, all right, fine. <laughs> but shut up, Tim. <laughs> on the flip side of that, when we played as a group of four, one of my friends um, aggressively lied about the cards that he was putting in and he was caught out on it. Everybody looked at him and was like, that's not the card you said. Like, this person had this card, this person, this is the card. Like, you, clearly you were lying about what they put in. And they were like, yeah, I'm lying about it. What are you going to do about it? And so we knew he was the thing. <laughs> but at a group of four, we had to drag his ass on every single mission. And so he literally sit, sat back there like something in a Western where he's just like flicking sabotage cards into his hat from across the table. And we're like, God damn it. Like, give us a fucking break. And he's like, nope. That was the only game that we did not get to the end is because he basically realized, oh, there's no downside for me to just blatantly destroy everything you do. So I do think, like, again, I think player size is important to this because it can be too easy or too hard depending on how aggressively or not aggressively your players want to play it. So the thing does, there is sort of like a social contract in place here that says, and the, the rule book I think even has some, some stuff, some suggestions on how to play is that, because it's basically saying, you know, you need to play the right way. Like you cannot play sloppy or fast or aggressively. Like you have to be, you have to be committed to the narrative. You have to be role playing the thing who thinks or wants to pass off as human. So there's that layers of like, you need to think like a human. You also need to think like the monster and do both. And so that's that's the only thing with this game is if somebody comes in and is basically like, oh, I'm just going to reveal myself as the thing because there's four players and the math on that doesn't make sense. You need an element of that storytelling and you need people to buy into that a bit. Right. And and I, I guess I haven't really read that part. I, I guess I have in that instructions. And it makes sense that within the world of the movie, yes, if one player revealed themselves to be an alien monster right from the start, the other 12 guys at that station would team up and murder them immediately. Like they don't have the strength to do it. They're just as strong as, as a human being, but like that doesn't, there is no gameplay element that translate that. So yeah, it is, it is about a social contract that like, Hey, if we don't, if you don't play this way, it's not going to be as fun. And I've, I guess I've broken that contract once and I had a lot of fun and everyone had a lot of fun being mad at me, but it didn't make for a good game. Right. So, yeah, maybe there needs to be a little more push on that. Or, you know, like I was saying, it feels like there should be some sort of gameplay mechanic of like something at the end of the 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 first uh, the first part of the base when act one ends the the, uh, the option to, to do something to get rid of a player or something like that. But boy, it is uh, the these are also like 
this is the minutia that we have gotten into on it because the rest of it plays so well. Uh, Matt brought up earlier that uh, there is another The Thing-based board game that came out at the exact same time, which is an adaptation of the short story Who Goes There, which, as we mentioned before, Who Goes There has all the same character names and a lot of the same stuff, the helicopter yeah. and the blood test and all these things. So I, I bought that game uh, off Kickstarter, and it is a much much different game with a lot of like trading cards to upgrade gear and stuff and there is a million pieces to that game so i like it and i find it a really interesting like different take on the on the exact same short story source material which beyond movies or video games let's talk about adapting a a short story from the the 30s uh into <laughs> into a board game that that is that fun um but it is uh it did make me really thankful for just how streamlined the mondo game is uh because uh, all things considered there when i unpacked the game the first time i was like there's a board and then there's a couple of these other sideboards that keep track of various information and then there's all these cards and at first i was like this seems like a, a lot but like i understand it to be a complicated thing and and in looking at in looking at other games uh now including an adaptation of the exact same property i'm like wow this could have had like 30 times the amount of stuff uh and to, to have like it makes me consider the fact that the cards that you have in your hand uh, are both objects that have uh, possible applications in various situations, but also those cards have certain value numbers assigned to them, and those numbers play in a different way. So that's just a way of not having three different sets of cards that everyone has to play with. And I was like, oh, okay, that's a sort of streamlining that, like, you really work a game to get it down to that point. Like, here is the bare essentials, but they can do a Swiss army knife of things. So, yeah. And it's important to remember too, um, for people that are looking at Mondo as now a board game entity, you know, Mondo's board game division is a partnership between Mondo and Raygun USA. And Raygun USA is really best known for licensed adaptations of pre-existing games. So when you go to target and you see, you know, Fallout Monopoly or Lord of the Rings Life or whatever it may be like that is that is their niche they are people that that don't reinvent the wheel when it comes to mechanics you know they are not and I'm sure that, that that's changing as the board game industry as a whole is changing but historically they're an organization that has been about taking pre-existing properties uh, board game properties that work and applying licensed themes to them so I think that that Mondo and Raygun have found a really nice balance here of letting Mondo do what they do really well, which is art and design and all of those elements, and then letting Raygun bring in a pretty simple, but providing enough depth to enjoy kind of these social interactions, a pretty simple theme, uh, pretty simple mechanics, and just letting the two of those come together. So when we were talking about this the last time, the last time we were chatting about it, you know, I think we kind of agreed that like if the outcome for this is that you know, people say that it is a pretty good board game that looks amazing. I think that feels like it would be a win for everyone involved because it is a pretty good board game that looks amazing. And I think that's what they set out to do. And I think that's what they've done. So, you know, this is not the 10,000 piece Kickstarter box that costs $100 million um, that, you know, you have to bid all the way up to the maximum tier in order to get every little piece. Like this is <laughs> this is something that 
people will play, but you could also put this on the shelf at Target and people could buy it and they would go home and they would really enjoy it, I think. So it's a good, it, it does a really good job of sort of hitting on all the various interests that would exist in a thing board game. Yeah, that is worth saying that also, I mean, Mondo is known for making a lot of uh, soundtrack records and, and, and posters and stuff using an in-house uh, sort of in-house team of artists or, or people that they've built up a collection of over the last 10, 15 years. Uh, and so when they do a record or something, I, you, you spend an extra $15 just to have what that, that art looks like and, and the people involved in it. And that is also true of this game. There was a, a more expensive version, which is the version that I got that came with an limited edition art lithograph from Jock who is uh, one of their big names. And it also came with, um, they, uh, they didn't want to do anything that was like what happens in a Kickstarter thing where you're buying a bunch of add-on packs or missions or things that other people would never have access to. So in the special edition of this board game, there is one extra mission and one extra piece. Uh, and that extra piece is the, uh, the character piece for a frozen Norwegian, just a dead Norwegian frozen in the snow. And the mission that it goes along with that is to send some people out into the snow to, to investigate his body. Uh, and it's cute. It's very funny to me that I, I, I paid a lot of money to have one tiny dead Norwegian man uh, in my game, uh, and he almost never comes up. So that's, uh, that's my level of allegiance to Mondo. <laughs> uh, and they've made a great product. And, and yeah, the, the partnership that they have with Raygun and the ability to bring this in, I... I cannot wait to see what they do next because there are so many very visual, cool, stylized, cinematic worlds that like uh, could use this level of adaptation and you could do really cool things with. Yeah, can you imagine some of the, I mean, them just applying some board game mechanics to some of the weird 70s and 80s filmography that they have access to? Like, do you want a Miss 45 board game? Because we could have a Miss 45 board game. I started with Taxi Driver, so we were in the same space. Like, where's where's all the slasher board games? Yes. And, and weird revenge murder games? Yes. Hopefully those will be on the horizon. <laughs> all right, so our last our last two segments then um, here before we wrap, Brock. Um, like you said, I think these will be part of it going forward, too. Let's, let's talk about whether we would recommend this both for a fan of the movie and if we would recommend it for a more general board game fan. And let's start with the movie. Do you think that this would play well with people that love John Carpenter's The Thing? Uh, I, yeah, it's it's such a an easy, direct translation of this. Uh, and I also had people in, in one of my games that, like, one of them watched the movie the night before we played for the very first time because they're young, cool millennials that probably have cool things to do and have sex. Uh, and so they don't have time to rewatch John Carpenter films, but also somebody at that at that game uh, had never seen the movie before, and I was very worried. I was like, I was actually a little annoyed at the start. I was like, I'm going to have to explain so many things to you. And w- at the end of the first game, everything made sense, and I was like, I don't think I would understand why we got to heat up blood with a flamethrower in a petri dish. But sure, you're on board, and and it, the game is its own separate thing. So cool, good for you. So yes, I recommend it to fans of the movie. What about you? <laughs> Yeah, I would. And I, um, you know, we both did this. I know we both did this because we talked about it. You know, the most important part of my thing board game experience was turning and going, Alexa, play Ennio, Ennio Morricone's The Thing soundtrack, which she did. 
and that became the music that we had going throughout the entire game. And you know, it's similar to what we talked about with Fallout because we both played the, the soundtrack there. Anytime you can take kind of a music element and you know you play the board game, but you set the mood because I had the soundtrack playing and then I had the movie on the television playing on silent. And it just, people that, that enjoy these properties, it's a really fun opportunity to do what sort of amounts, I guess, to like a theme party, you know? Like this is a, um, you're not just playing a board game, you're having sort of like a thing theme night and it becomes right. it becomes a fun way to sort of bring all of that together. So yes, if you are if you're a fan of the movie, I think the game is approachable enough. I think it's accessible enough for you to play. Um, you know, we I talked a little bit about this with Fallout about, you know, my dad and his level of engagement with that game and he he kind of got up in the middle of it and you know, did the Jerry Seinfeld like uh, hands up in the air like I'm not going to do this. Um, but I think I could take this home and I think I could play this with my dad and I think he'd have a great time because he likes the movie, he knows the movie and it's the same thing with everybody else. You can take people and say, we're gonna play a board game based on the thing and they're like, I know the thing, I saw that movie once upon a time, I kinda liked it, sure, I'd love to come over and then you got yourself a board game night. And and you write about it before, like it is it is Werewolf or Secret Hitler, these are, as opposed to Fallout, which involves explaining an entire universe yeah uh, this you can be like well you can start from the place of you know that game that you already know how to play this has that but there's more pieces yeah one of you is the werewolf and by werewolf we mean shape-shifting space alien and just play from there and and maybe he makes more werewolf friends as we go that's that's the twist <laughs> mm-hmm. so we got we're going to recommend this for game players i think maybe this is the part where you and i diverge uh or, sorry we're going to recommend this for fans of the movie um, how do you feel about board game people? And I, there's a, I have, I think we might disagree slight, ever so slightly on this one, but you go first. Um, I, I think it's, I think it's an excellent game, but I, I also recognize over the course of talking about it here that there are some critiques, and like I, I'm not the board game guy, but I, I do know that, um, like uh, my my brother-in-law who works at a board game store, like was not a fan of uh, Fallout in a in a real big way and uh hey uh andrew uh i i'm sorry if i like everything too much here again but uh yeah i don't know uh i i think that some of the issues uh with the end game might be problematic for people like there is there is some balance stuff that you know again a couple of of home set rules uh are, are probably not the worst thing but i i think everyone enjoys it i've not had a, a bad experience with anybody and overwhelmingly this is the most like screaming and laughing I've ever done around a board game uh, with wildly different friend groups so I I consider that a win yeah I so when I think of board game people when I'm talking about that you know I'm thinking about people that are um, not casual that are collectors probably that are gonna play a lot of different types of things and you know are probably a little bit plugged into what they're going to join what they're gonna play so with that specific audience in mind I think I would probably say hold off on getting the thing certainly play it if you can but i think there are versions of this game if you're looking at it just as a set of mechanics i think there are versions of this game stuff like dead of winter that does it slightly better that does it a bit more engaged in a complex manner um and you know i was thinking about it it was like it's fun it's definitely a little light but like where where is that that x factor that disconnect that i am feeling a bit in terms of this as a board game and i think to me it just sort of boils down to this Mondo is a brand for obsessives, but the thing is not a board game for 
obsessives, for people, for board game obsessives. So that feels a bit like where that slight disconnect comes into play is the people that buy Mondo are the people that think nothing about dropping $300 on a new poster. People that play board games are the people that think nothing about dropping $300 on a board game Kickstarter. But those two audiences for this specific game are not quite one and the same. And so I think it it really does play better with people that are maybe like a little less involved, a little bit more of a, we have a social game night once every month or two, then we're going to get this on the table. But if you're somebody that's like every weekend, I got a board game group every Tuesday night, my group of four meets and we play something. It might just be a little simple for that group, I think. And I kind of, I've got, I go back and forth on a little bit, but yeah, that, that idea that Mondo is for obsessives, board games are for obsessives. Mondo's board game is not necessarily for obsessives. I'll take that. Yeah, that's a, that is a fair diversion here. Uh, yeah, I, I, I stand behind that too, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So once again, we're kind of in a, I think we, I think we've talked about this before. I think we'll probably end up with this a lot because at the end of the day, licensed board games, I think are first and foremost for the people that love the license. So we will probably encounter a lot of games and I'm really excited to find those games where it works independent of that licensing, where we play something and we're like, this is a incredible board game and it could be called like man in 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 the woods and it would just be as exciting as it was with the the license slapped on it we're, we're gonna find those but i think generally we'll probably skew a little bit more towards this is great for fans and it's okay for people who aren't fans there are a couple of different board games that have net names fairly close to a man in the woods you know, <laughs> not gonna not gonna look at that right now uh, so that's been our episode of Mondo's The Thing. Uh, I've been Brock Wilbur. I'm at Brock Wilbur on Twitter. Uh, I do writing and stuff. You can find me there or check out some of my other podcasts on iTunes, including the one I have with my wife and the one I have with my other friends about other friend things. Uh, Matt, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter as well. My username is Labsplice, L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E. Um, I'm at the... Austin Chronicle and Film School Rejects every week. I pop up in other places as my limited schedule allows me to pitch. Um, but yeah, I, I'm very pleased. I am now one of like eight different podcasts that Brock is doing, but I'm biased. I think that this one is my favorite. And a special thanks to our editor, Terrence. Uh, Terrence, thank you for editing this. People will hire Terrence Wiggins to edit your podcasts. He's uh, such a good boy. He's at the Black Nerd on Twitter. Uh, give him money. And what about that uh, theme song, so, Brock? That's a cool theme song well, we got, right? Yeah, that's our good theme song. Uh, thanks to uh, Denver Band Spells for that cool theme song we got. Am I supposed to thank somebody else? I'm running out of people that I know. I thank everyone I know. <laughs> we thank all of you, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, bye! <laughs> <laughs>